Mm-hmm. Hook it up. Performing a rapid scan. When you uh, when you get down to the physical exam part, you've got your priority patients and you've got your patients that are stable. Medical or trauma is different, and it slightly alters the way you're going to do your your initial assessment and everything else. But the physical exam, if someone is a priority or unstable patient, when you get to your secondary assessment or your body, uh, when you go to checking their body out, you have to do a rapid head-to-toe. These people may be unconscious. You may not be able to ask them questions, and they may not be able to answer you. So you've got to do a rapid head-to-toe physical exam. If someone is stable, they're conscious, alert, oriented, able to speak to you, they're stable, maybe they just have an isolated extremity injury or something, then you will focus your physical exam on their chief complaint. I rolled my ankle, my left ankle hurts. There's not, I mean, if they rolled their ankle and then didn't fall and hit their head, they just kind of rolled their ankle and it's obvious that's the only thing that's wrong. It doesn't really make a whole bunch of sense to palpate their scalp and to feel their cheekbones and all that, right? So there's a whole bunch of common sense again. Uh, Scan the body to identify injuries that must be managed or protected immediately. It shouldn't take that long to perform, about a minute, minute and a half, especially for those priority patients. Because if someone is a priority patient, you're off the scene how fast? Ten minutes. minutes. And what do we call that ten? The platinum ten. That's right. For trauma patients with isolated injury and no significant mechanism of injury, or response to medical patients, focus on the body systems involved and the specific injury or illness guided by the patient's chief complaint. See? Anybody all right? Determine the patient's level of consciousness using the patient's orientation to person, place, and time. Alright, 
Come on back, nice and easy. Take it there. It's fun now. Lay down, I can get better feel. If indicated, perform a detailed physical examination. If anybody else picked out the real problem in that scenario, whisper it to me next, next break. Alright, determine the priority of your patient care and transport. High priority patients, those are the ones, those are the priority patients. Those are the ones that you're going to be out to scene in 10 minutes for. Anybody, anybody having difficulty in breathing, if you think that's not a priority, hold your breath for a couple minutes. <laughs> You'll see. Difficulty breathing. Any serious mechanism of injury. Would you say if someone's traveling down the 85, leave the roadway and bounce off of a few trees, is that a serious mechanism? Yes. Absolutely. Um, a lot of things boils down to provider impression as well. I know y'all kind of giggle at me when I say it, and I know it's probably not that professional sounding, but... Sick folks look sick, and it's just, you, you, there's no way around it. If you have a poor general impression, if they <clears> look <throat> like they are bad off, off the scene in 10 minutes. Don't waste time. If they're unresponsive, uh, that is not normal. You should, I mean, if they're just asleep, that's something different, obviously, but as soon as you, hey, hey, sir, ma'am, they're going to wake up, you know. But other than that, that is not normal. That's with a gag reflex or without a gag reflex. Um, chest pain. That's a priority patient. Because as far as you are concerned, chest pain in the pre-hospital environment is a heart attack. Until proven otherwise. Pale skin, other signs of poor perfusion. Complicated childbirth. Notice it just didn't say childbirth, right? Is childbirth in and of itself a medical emergency? Nope. It's a natural occurrence. Now, I want you to think about that. How many times have you been to the hospital and you see that sign in the emergency room that says, if you are having a medical emergency or are in labor, you're entitled to these things. Y'all ever seen that sign? No. Next time you go, look for it. It's there. They make a difference. It's not a medical emergency. All right. So complicated childbirth, uncontrolled bleeding, all these people need to be gone. You need to get them off the scene quick as you can. Uh, responsive means their eyes are open, they're looking at you, but they're unable to follow commands. <clears throat> Any severe pain, uh, inability to move any part of their body, all these folks need to be off the scene within 10 minutes. Priority patients. Provide spinal immobilization if there's a possible uh, spinal injury. And again, I, I know them smart people up in Toronto have done a study and they're saying that maybe we shouldn't put everybody on the backboard anymore because we're creating 
pressure sores and things of that nature, and they're smarter than I am, so I have to take their word for it. But, as far as you're concerned at this point, the EMT curriculum says you have two types of patients, right? You got a medical patient and you have a trauma patient. Trauma patients get immobilized. You protect the spine of a trauma patient unless you have x-ray vision. That's what you should do. And then follow your protocols at work. Do what your boss wants you to do. The golden period or the golden hour that we've already discussed is the time from the injury to definitive care. It's not when you get the call. It's not when you show up. It's when they got injured to the time they get definitive care. And what is definitive care? It's what actually fixes the problem, right? It may not be just simply the hospital, though, Perry. You might have to have a surgeon cutting them open to fix the problem. Whatever fixes the problem, not address the signs and symptoms. That's what we do. We look at signs and symptoms and take care of them. But definitive care is what actually fixes the problem. So between injury to definitive care, if that's an hour or less, they stand a great chance of survival. Transport decisions must always and only be based on patient's condition, availability of the advanced care, distance of transport, and local protocol. That should drive your every decision, truth be told. If someone needs to get to the hospital quickly, you transport lights and sirens or helicopter or whatever you, whatever you need to do. But you don't set at stop signs. You don't set at lights. But now if you're going to wreck an ambulance or a fire truck, where's it going to be? In an intersection. So absolutely be careful. Use that due caution that they talk about in the law. But get them there. Uh, you're not held to the letter of the law as it comes to traffic. But if the patient is stable... Follow the traffic laws. Okay? So you're saying if the patient is stable, you still have to stop the red light? Mm -hmm. If the patient condition, if the patient's condition allows it, you absolutely stop <clears throat> stop at lights, stop signs, everything. Again, even if they're unstable, you don't want to bust through an intersection without stopping and making eye contact with everybody anyhow. Because you being injured or dead ain't going to help nobody. Alright? Reconsider your mechanism of injury. Um, do your full body scan or focused assessment. And again, that is all based on what the patient is doing. Wear your seatbelt. Get your patient history. Uh, that's going to provide details about the chief complaint and the signs of, and symptoms. You're going to document the date of the incident, the times of assessments and interventions, the patient's age, sex, past medical history, and current health status. All of this is included. Now, but I'm going to go ahead and stop. And we keep talking about the patient history. And I said a sample history. And if you can remember to get a sample history, you'll always remember what questions to ask them. And why is it important to know their medical history? It's like, like 
the guy that fell off the skateboard possibly broke his ankle. Why is it important to know if he has medical conditions? What's that got to do with that traumatic event? Could have caused it. Maybe he's on certain medications because of that uh, traumatic event that's going to make him bleed easier. Or maybe it's going to affect his heart rate and things of that nature. Okay? So you need to get a sample history. And if you remember to get your sample history, you'll always know the questions to ask. And you should ask every patient these questions or gather this information. S stands for, does anybody know? Signs and symptoms. What's the difference between a sign and a symptom? What's a sign? Something you can see or measure yourself, right? Hypertension. Took the blood pressure. You saw <coughs> that their blood pressure was elevated, right? What's the symptom? Well, you could feel them and they physically feel that they're warm. I'm nauseated or, or my head hurts or whatever. That's something that they tell you. So signs and symptoms. What's the A? Allergies. Allergies. Are they allergic to any medications or any foods or anything else? What's the M? Are you currently taking any medications? If so, what are they? What's the P? Past. Pertinent. Medical. HX is history. Past pertinent medical history. I have a history of high blood pressure. I have a history of depression. I have a history of diabetes. Whatever the case may be. L. Last oral intake. When's the last time you ate? What was it? And then E. Events leading up to injury or illness. What were you doing when this happened? So if you know your sample history, you'll always remember what questions to ask. Okay? Again, with the history taken, you're going to investigate the chief complaint. Make introductions, make the patient feel comfortable. Obviously, you're going to obtain permission to treat before you treat any patient. Ask a few questions. It says, refer to the patient as Mr., Ms., or Mrs. using the patient's last name. Okay. If the patient is unresponsive, you can ask family members. What are these right here? All right. Basically, it's medical alert bracelets. If they have a DNR, you flip on the back and you'll see, do not resuscitate. Or it may tell you, uh, may clue you to some medical conditions they have or something that they're allergic to. Okay? Did you going to say something, Colby? Do you need, if you see one that says DNR, do you need any other type of proof? No, they don't, no, they don't require you to be a lawyer on the scene. If you see that and it says do not resuscitate, then... 
document that you saw it, you know. And here we go. Use the mnemonic sample to obtain the following information. Signs and symptoms, allergies, medications, pertinent past medical history, last oral intake, or events leading up to the illness or injury. Now looking at this uh, patient assessment trauma sheet, if you have it, where's, where do you see sample history at on here? Under history taking. Attempts to obtain a sample history. That's right. So at the at that point in this assessment is when you would ask your sample questions. All right. Here's another one. Use the OPQRST and I. Conscious medical patients always obtain patient history before conducting a physical exam. Follow the OPQRST approach. Okay, OPQRST and I, sometimes called the pain questions, okay? Pain questions. Onset. What were you doing with this when this started, okay? What was happening? And that in and of itself will kind of trigger your mind to go one direction or the other. Going back to what I asked you a little while ago, I said, what type of chest pain in the pre-hospital environment is a heart attack as far as you're concerned, right? But when you go to asking your pain questions onset, what were you doing when this started? If one person says, well, I was splitting firewood in my backyard. or the, And then that kind of might clue you to one thing. Could be pulled muscle, could be something else, or it could be a heart attack because that's how you're going to treat it, right? But the second patient says, I was laying in my bed asleep and my chest started hurting. Does that paint a different picture to you? So that onset, which one do you think red flags are going to go up on the quickest? The one that was laying there sleeping and his chest started hurting. Okay? So onset, what were you doing when this started? 
provocation or palliation. Does anything make the pain worse or better? Does anything make the pain worse or better? If I sit in a chair, kind of rest a little bit, the pain gets better. That might tell you one thing. Nothing makes it better. Nothing makes it worse. It's just constant. That should tell you something different. Okay? Quality. Can you explain or, explain or describe the pain? Is it a squeezing type pain? Is it a sharp stabbing type pain? Whatever the case may be, and this needs to be in their words. Radiation. Does the pain move anywhere? Yeah, the pain in my chest goes down my left arm and up into my left jaw. Maybe, I, maybe I'm hurting between my shoulder blades as well. Does the pain move? Severity. There's something called... The Wong-Baker scale. And it's patented, by the way. Do we have that scale on our book? Smiley faces or the, all the faces... Like hurts a little, hurts a lot. That's the Wong Baker scale. Dr. Wong and Dr. Baker, I guess, come up with that. I don't know. But it's patented and that's what it's for. It's a very subjective thing. On a scale of one to ten, with ten being the worst pain you've ever felt in your life, how would you rate your pain? Okay? Again, that's very, very subjective. Depends on the person, right? But it tells you what they're thinking anyhow, right? Because what might be a, a two to me might be a ten for Justin. I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> but it tells you what that person's thinking. Anyhow. It's very subjective, okay? But And, and now are those things generational too? Like if you ask a 80-year-old man or woman, it doesn't matter, today, how bad does that hurt? They ain't going to give you a number above two or three, are they? Because they were taught not to complain, right? As opposed to somebody my age, I'm dying. You know what I mean? So, anyhow. Onset, provocation, or palliation, quality, radiation, severity, time, and then the eye is what? Interventions. Have you done anything for this before I got here? Yeah, I chewed some baby ash. Whatever the case may be. Okay? You need to document all that. Quality of pain, like we said, how does it feel? Describe it. Sensitive topics, I guess. Alcohol, drugs. Um, you need to talk to them. You need to ask them, especially if you smell the alcohol. I mean, or if you smell, the, I guess it has to be like pot or something, I guess, if you're going to smell the drugs. But if you have something that, you, that clues you, to, maybe it's their pupil size, something, you know, ask them. They're not always going to be straightforth and honest with you. Typically, if you're going to get the truth, it's going to be in the back of the ambulance when it's just you and the patient and you're heading to the hospital already. Usually, if you draw up like a flush, a saline flush or something, Say, our right, partner, I really need to know if you've had something before I give you this. It might, you know, I just don't know. Hey, dog, hold on. <laughs> yeah, I might have slipped and fell into that pot bowl. I ain't sure. 
Yeah. Whatever. Alright. Here's another case where I'm not really sure how this slide fits in right here, but here we go. Still under sample history, physical abuse or violence, report all physical abuse or domestic violence to appropriate authorities. Uh, sad commentary on, on us as people, I know, but the, probably the two biggest groups that we abuse or neglect are the ones that de depend on us the most, right? Kids and the elderly. So any abuse, any neglect, you got to report it. Do that at the hospital. Keep you cool, be nice and smile till you get to the hospital. Then report your objective findings to the doctor at the hospital and they'll go, they'll take it from there, okay? Alright, consider all female patients of childbearing age who report lower abdominal pain to be pregnant. Now, is that going to be true the vast majority of the time? No. But why should you consider them pregnant? Don't rule it out. Don't rule it out. Sometimes they don't know, but here's the deal. Especially when you go to pushing any type of medication, you need to be extra cautious. When we get to the advanced part and we start learning those medication cards in Chapter 7, at the bottom of each one you're going to see pregnancy categories. A lot of these medicines don't, they don't do good things for the unborn fetus. So if she's of childbearing age, complaining of abdominal pain, don't tell her, girl, you're pregnant. <laughs> don't do that, but just don't be pushing medicines. You know what I'm saying? The paramedic will be taking the same approach as well. Consider the fact that she might be, and you don't want to do anything to harm the baby. That's all they're trying to say here. All right. Special challenges in obtaining patient history. Uh, patience is extremely important. Sometimes people are, are going to go kind of go on and on and on. And then whereas you're told to ask open-ended questions to get more information, right? Some of them you may have to revert back to the old yes or no questions, the closed-ended questions. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Uh, sir, um, do you have any paramedic, Cato County? here to help you. What's wrong? What's going on today? Well, 15 minutes later when he finishes telling you, you might have to say, hey, well listen, you you said chest pain. Is that why you called the ambulance day? Because your chest is hurt. Yes, yes or no? There may be uh, reasons why patients are overly talkative. Excessive caffeine consumption, nervousness, ingestion of cocaine, crack cocaine, methamphetamines. Again, not really sure why it's in there. There may be multiple different symptoms, and we're talking about some things that are going to kind of complicate or uh, make your assessment a little bit more difficult. And like I told you, you have to keep in mind what you see what you hear, what you smell, what you measure, what the patient tells you, what the cardiac monitor says, what the pulse oximeter says, what the BP cuff says, all these things are just pieces to the puzzle, okay? It's going to clue you to what's going on. 
anger and hostility, friends, family, bystanders may direct their anger toward you. How are you going to handle that? Well, don't argue back with them, right? You remain calm. You remain professional. It doesn't matter if you're sitting there. You can think about choke slamming somebody all you want. <laughs> Just don't do it. Be nice. Smile at them. A lot of times that will de-escalate the situation and they'll stop being mean. They're, they're just scared. They're just nervous. You know what I mean? Um, just calm, reassure them. Let them know, hey, I'm here to help. There's a lot of people, even though they picked up the phone and they called 911, you walk in with your uniform, a lot of times we wear badges, fire and EMS, right? They may think you're law enforcement, even though you got a jump bag and everything else, so... Just calm, reassure them, be gentle, don't argue back. But if they just won't calm down and it gets to the point where you think it's unsafe for you to be there, don't be there. Kind of leave and have law enforcement secure the scene. Now, intoxication. Do not put an intoxicated patient in a position where he or she feels threatened. There's a high potential for violence. Be accepting, diplomatic, objective, and non-judgmental. For the love of God, we don't want to judge nobody in this world. What if a drunk person or someone who is showing... Objective signs of intoxication. Can they tell you, go on, leave me alone. I don't even want you here. Who can refuse treatment? A conscious, competent adult. But if you are intoxicated, you are not legally competent in the eyes of the law. Now, I said intoxicated. I didn't say, I didn't say been drinking beer. Because if you go somewhere and they've had two, three beers or whatever. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about if if they show clinical signs of intoxication. They're slurring their words. Maybe they tell you, yeah, I drank a case. Then you document that in quotations. They can't walk straight. They keep falling down. Those are objective findings and you document those. But if you just document, patient was drunk, Lawyer's going to ask you when you became a toxicologist, and it ain't going to work out. So, anyhow, what and 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 why does the law assume that? I mean, if someone is intoxicated, again, not just drinking, but if they're intoxicated, will it hide or mask some some potential problems? Yep, drunk folks get hurt too. I promise you, drunk folks have heart attacks. Drunk folks have strokes. All these things happen, so don't fall into that. Patient may be sad, in pain, emotionally overwhelmed. Remain calm, be patient. Bizarre or confusing behavior. There are medical causes for some of that. Things that you you can kind of correct, right? Bizarre behavior may be from hypoxia. If their brain's not getting enough oxygen, they will act differently. They're going to kind of act weird or strange to you. How do you fix that? 
Give them oxygen. A stroke could cause it as well. You're probably not fixing that one, right? But early recognition, okay? Calling a stroke alert to the hospital. Doing the things that, that they will allow you to do. Some, some jurisdictions will allow you to draw blood on stroke patients in the field. Then you walk into the emergency room to a stroke center, somebody that can handle them. You hand them the blood draws. You go straight to the CT lab so they can look at the head to see if he's bleeding or not. Okay? Diabetes will definitely cause bizarre behavior. When we get to diabetes, uh, or I guess the lecture on the endocrine system, when we talk about diabetes, y'all get to hear my Circle the Wagons boy story. It's funny. <laughs> and it's real. Anyhow, diabetes, trauma, uh, someone gets injured, they, they sustain a, a head injury, that pressure starts to build inside their cranial vault, these people will fight you. Certain medications, other drugs, Alzheimer's, dementia, <coughs> delirium, bless you. All these things could cause, uh, I guess, confusing or bizarre behavior, and it's going to help you. Those with limited cognitive abilities, special needs people, that's going to present challenge. Language barriers. People who are deaf. Most people who have hearing impairments can read lips or read at least some to, to understand what you're talking about. But when all else fails, what can you do for a hearing impaired person? Right there. Visual impaired. Identify yourself verbally. Return any items that you've moved to their previous position because they kind of remember where that ottoman is, right? Don't go moving it. That's a cruel joke. <laughs> Explain to the patient what's happening uh, and, and as you go to the ambulance, if they're walking, you know, have them put, put their hand on your shoulder so that they know which way to go. Secondary assessment performed at the scene in the back of the ambulance or en route to the hospital or not at all. I say who can critically think for me right now. Under what circumstances would a secondary assessment never be performed? That's right. If you can't get through the primary assessment, if you can't properly secure the ABCs, you'll never get to the secondary assessment. Well, that'd be another example, too, I guess. The purpose of the secondary assessment is uh, for you to perform a systematic physical examination of the, of the patient, maybe a full body scan or an assessment that focuses on a certain area of the body. Like I was telling you earlier, priority patients, and don't get confused, priority patients can be medical patients. They don't have to be trauma patients. But if someone is priority or unstable, it's going to be that rapid head to toe. You've got to look, you've got to palpate or feel, you've got to auscultate or listen, 
you're, you're doing that all over their body, head to toe. If someone is conscious, alert, and oriented, stable, with an isolated extremity injury like the guy on the skateboard earlier, you focus your physical exam on the chief complaint. My ankle hurts. Alright? Stethoscope. If you don't have a little little ten dollar BP cuff or whatever, go get you one and bring it uh, when you come to class Wednesday. 
bring it with you. We'll put our hands on this. We'll actually do that. But he said something a couple of times. He said, the crock cough sounds. One page report on that, please, when you come here Wednesday too. You need to know what the crock cough sounds are. Have your little cheap stuff. And I want you to go spend a bunch of money. I think $10, $15, you could probably get both if you don't have them already. We get a stethoscope and a BP cuff and bring it with you Wednesday. And we're definitely going to put our hands on doing some vital signs as well. Any questions? I spell that. And it's in the ink that you can see too now. Does anybody know? Pulse ox, BP, respiratory rate, heart rate, skin, color, temperature, condition is really a vital sign as well. So, is anybody in the room that doesn't know what pulse ox is? A pulse oximetry. If you don't, that's fine. All right. Basically, that is a version of a pulse oximeter. What it does is you place it on their finger... And it shoots a red light through their nail bed, and it tells you what? A lot of times there will be a number on there that will show you a heart rate, and it will show you a number with a percentage. What is the SpO2 technically measuring? It is measuring the amount of hemoglobin in the blood with the assumption that oxygen has adhered itself to it. So if you may have a 100% pulse ox reading, the patient may have extreme difficulty in breathing, right? What are you going to pay attention to? Everybody in the room, write this down. You treat the patient, not the machine. If someone says they have difficulty breathing and the pulse oximetry readings are normal or even 100%, you treat the patient, not the machine. And also, another little clue, like right here is where the little pulse rate would show up. And each time it bumps, or have, some of them have bar graphs that will move back and forth when it detects a pulse. Or sometimes the little heart on there will just blink each time it detects a pulse. Put your hands on the patient. Feel the pulse. And make sure every time that thing shows a pulse, you're feeling a pulse. Does that make sense? Make sure that it's accurate. And that's what I'm saying. Patients with difficulty breathing should receive oxygen regardless of what the pulse oximeter says. A sphygmomanometer is a blood pressure cuff. A sphygmomanometer. Right there. That's a BP cuff. And there's two different ways to take a BP. You can, you can auscultate a BP or listen for one, or you can palpate for one. And we'll, we'll, we'll demonstrate that, and we'll, we'll do that in class Wednesday. So do not forget to bring your stuff, Okay. And I'm not going to get too too far into this entitled CO2 except for to tell you that because diffusion, when you take that breath, remember the neuroregulation of the respiratory cycle, right? 
What happens in that one cell thick membrane between the alveoli and the capillary beds? What moves back and forth? What is exchanged? Oxygen and carbon dioxide. In the title, when you breathe, rise and fall of the chest is called what? Tidal volume. So end tidal is what? When they exhale. That's the end of the respiratory cycles. That makes sense? End tidal, that's when they exhale. The amount of carbon dioxide in their expired breath when they exhale. When you hear entitled carbon dioxide or entitled CO2, that's what they're saying. How much carbon dioxide is in their exhaled breath? Capnography measures that. Okay? Usually it's a little tube that comes off of the cardiac monitor. It might look like a nasal cannula. Or it might be something else, a little device that they breathe through or whatever. But it's entitled CO2. It should be between 35 and 45. Whenever you see MMHG, that means millimeters of mercury. Between 35 and 45 millimeters of mercury. You need to know that value. Entitled CO2 should be between 35 and 45 millimeters of mercury. Now let's just say somebody's struggling to breathe or maybe uh, hypoventilating. Maybe they're, they're only breathing four times a minute. What might you expect to find their entitled CO2 to be? Higher, right? They're bringing in less oxygen, therefore they're exhaling less carbon dioxide. It's accumulating. Does that make sense? So if somebody's breathing 30 times a minute, what might you expect? It is inversely proportionate to the respirations. Okay? And a colorimetric device basically is just that. It's a device that you put between like the endotracheal tube, bag valve mask or whatever, and as they, their expired breath passes over this membrane, it might be yellow or purple initially, but the carbon dioxide will make it change colors. That's how you know, that's how we used to confirm tube placement and things of that nature, was the, was the colorimetric <laughs> devices. But capnography is the gold standard. It's really the only way to measure it that meets up to the current standards is capnography. Those are colorimetric devices. That's capnography. <coughs> blood glucose determination. Checking their blood sugar. What you need to know for right now is normal blood glucose levels is between 80 and 120 milligrams per deciliter of blood. 80 to 120 milligrams of sugar per deciliter of blood. That is quote unquote normal. But again, you always treat the patient, not the machine, right? If you take somebody's blood sugar and they've got a blood sugar of 40, but they're acting completely oriented, 
not complaining of anything. Skin's warm, dry, abnormal color. What's wrong with them? Nothing. Some people just have lower blood sugars than others. That's just a fact. But normal is 80 to 120 milligrams per deciliter. And some people are really, really sweet. So. Inspect and palpate the scalp. Inspect and palpate the face. Inspect the nose, the mouth, and ears. Inspect the eyes and pupil. Inspect and palpate the neck. Look for jugular vein distension and tracheal deviation. This is that rapid head-to-toe physical exam for the priority patient. Inspect and palpate all four quadrants of the abdomen, looking for bruising and distension. Inspect and palpate all four extremities, looking for the quality of circulation as well as motor and sensory function. Palpate for instability in the pelvis. Assess the genitalia and perineum if appropriate. What was it? Right ankle, okay. But you might pull on. Can you push? Can you push forward. Yeah. Can you pull back? Yeah. Okay. Can you do it with your right? Uh -huh. No. Okay. <laughs> you ain't gonna do that. You gonna cut them off. We're probably going to go a little more technical than a pillow. <laughs> Just saying. Even though that is an improvised splint, but that's probably things they should do before you show up. three people to properly put somebody on the backboard. Inspect and palpate the thoracic and lumbar areas of the How spine. How many people is in that video? Make this a thorough inspection. Yes. All right, listen. That was the full body scan. Those, those, that is the physical examination you do for a priority patient. And you literally start at the scalp. You palpate the scalp. You're feeling for any deformities, anything that's softer than what it's supposed to be. I mean, and you're not going to push on it hard now, okay? But you know what a, a skull and scalp supposed to feel like, right? Then you're going to come up and check the forehead. You're going to check the zygomas. You're going to palpate them, feel them, touch them, okay? You're going to look in the pupils. You're checking the pupils for pearl, right? Do we know what pearl is? Pupils... Uh-oh. Pupils are pearl. That means pupil. And y'all write these down. They're equal, round, and reactive to light. You'll make sure the pupils are pearl. Equal, round, and reactive to light. Okay? 
Then you're going to check the mouth, the nose, and the, and the ears for any fluid that might be coming out. Cerebrospinal fluid. And, and, and again, we'll, we'll get... If some of this stuff you've never heard of before, that's fine. We're going to cover it again, I promise. But then once you do that, you get to the neck. There's two ways you, you want to check the neck. You want to check the anterior neck. You want to make sure there's no jugular vein distension. You want to make sure the blood vessels aren't engorged with blood. You want to make sure the trachea is midline. Then you're going to reach around to the back and you're going to palpate that cervical spine. Do you feel any deformities? Is there any point tenderness to the patient? Once you've done that, you're going to put the collar on. Okay? Then you're going to come down and check the chest. Can you check the chest properly with the shirt on? No. So bystanders need to do what? Looky-loos need to take a walk. Okay? Protect the privacy. But you're going to, three ways you're going to check the chest. You're going to visualize, palpate, and auscultate. What did I say in English? Look at it, feel of it, and listen to it, right? What's the most frequently broken bone in the human body? Collarbone, also called the little key because it twists when you move your arm, okay? But it's horizontal. All, a lot of the other bones are this direction, right? But it's that direction. Where are injuries sustained? When the body can't absorb the in, the energy, right? So collarbone, you reach up there and palpate that collarbone. Palpate the chest. You're feeling for any crepitus, any bones that might be moving. And as they breathe, you're trying to make sure that the left side of the chest is rising the same as the right side of the chest. Okay? Are they adequately expanding their chest? You're palpating the chest then you're going to auscultate or listen to the breath sounds. Do you hear any of those adventitious airway sounds? Do you hear the strider that we talked about? Do you hear the gurgling? If you hear gurgling, what should you do instantly? Roll them on the side, then suction. Okay? Then you're going to get down to the abdomen. And of course, you visually looked at the chest, obviously, as soon as you take the shirt off. Do you see any big bruising? Do you see any lacerations, abrasions, or whatever? Then you get down to the abdomen. You want to palpate the abdomen in all four quadrants. If you see bruising or you see an injury to a particular quadrant, you palpate that one last. Because if they're hurting and you push right where they're hurting, they're going to hurt more. They're going to take you off the Christmas card list, right? And they're going to guard more, right? So palpate that one last. You, when you palpate the abdomen, what are you checking for? Is it soft? Or is it rigid? Or like, I'm talking about rigid like that. If it, that's right. Now, if it's, if it's soft and you palpate and it seems to hurt when, the, when your hand comes up, or the muscles spring back. That's called rebound tenderness. That tells you something too. They have pretty pretty significant abdominal pain. Okay, But if it's rigid like this. And you look at them. And they look like me. And you know it ain't because of set ups. <laughs> and maybe it's sticking out a little bit. Right. But I'm talking about sticking out and hard. Okay, That means they're bleeding in their abdomen. That's the sign of a bleed. So you palpate the abdomen. Once you've done that, you want to check the pelvic girdle. You're going to push down 
excuse me, in and down on the iliac crests or your hip bones, okay? Do you feel any crepitus or anything like that? Do not rock. You used to rock the pelvis. We don't do that no more. Alright? And keep in mind, if there's a fracture in the pelvic ring, because those three bones make up a ring if you're looking, like if you lop them off and then look straight down, it's a ring of bones. Rarely do you have just a fracture like that, right? It's going to be like that. So if you have one fracture, you probably have multiple. So you palpate the pelvic girdle. Then you come down and you check the genitalia. Why do you do that? Well, if it's a male and he sustained a back injury, like a spinal cord injury, he will have an erection. It's called a priapism. Okay? That means he's the, the, the um, spinal cord's been cut. It's interrupting nerves that keep blood vessels from over-dilating. And the dilation of the vessels in the penis is what causes the erection. So he ain't happy to see you. <laughs> He's hurt. All right? If it's a female, certain situations, if it's appropriate, you would check the perineum. That's that space between the vagina and the anus, okay? No jokes. Because I know what it's called, but we don't need to hear it. So um, once you've done that, you're going to get down to the lower extremities. You're going to check both of the legs. You, can you do that with the pants on? What are you checking the legs for? You're going to check one, get down to the feet. Well, you're, does everybody have this? And we know what our report's on. Okay. <laughs> All right. <coughs> DCAP BTLS. Everybody in the room writes it down. When you palpate the extremities, this is what you're looking for. Does anybody know what it stands for? What is it, Michael? Deformities. Right, hold up. Deformities. Okay. Contusions. Contusions. Also known as a what? A bruise. Deformities, contusions. Abrasions. Abrasions. Punctures or penetrations, burns, tenderness, lacerations, or swelling. That is what you are, and how you going to do all that as you go down the leg? You're going to physically grab their leg and you're going to palpate the leg. <laughs> and you're checking for decap BTLS. Deformities, contusions, abrasions, punctures or penetrations, burns, tenderness, lacerations, or swelling. Alright? Then once you've gotten down to the bottom of that extremity, you get to the foot. What are you checking the foot for? And you're checking the foot for PMS. Pulse. Motor. And sensations. 
Where do you feel four poles in the foot? Straight up from the big toe, that dorsalis pedis pulse, right? Or you can feel behind the ankle, the medial ankle bone, also known as the medial malleolus, right? For that posterior tibial pulse. But the dorsalis pedis, straight up from the big toe, that's the best one to go for, in my opinion, okay? Once you find it, put an X. With a ballpoint pen or a Sharpie or something, put an X. Why are you going to write on people? That's rude, ain't it? You ain't got to waste time next time. You go right back, you put your fingers on that X, and if the pulse ain't there, what do you know? It was there a minute ago. Now it's not. The blood pressure may be going, right? And you don't have to waste time trying to find it again because it's not in the exact same spot for every person, okay? So decap BTLS all the way down the leg. You get to the foot. Feel for a pulse, motor. It like old buddy that was awake that fell off the skateboard. Guy said, Hey, he grabbed his feet and he said, Hey, can you push against my hand? Then put your hand on top of their foot. Can you pull against my hand? So have them push and pull with their feet. That's motor functioning. Is it there? And sensation. Just kind of grab their toes or whatever. Can you feel me touching your feet? And that's just a yes or no thing. If they are unconscious, how are you going to determine whether they have motor function or not? Poking with some. <laughs> you mean, G. But it is called... That's correct. The Babinski's test. If you take your pen... And you start at their heel, and you rake your pen with the cap on it, obviously. You know? Rake it up the sole of their foot. If they're unconscious, but they have normal motor function, they will push like they're pushing a gas pedal. Because that's uncomfortable if you had never had it done to you. But if you do that, and they don't move at all, that tells you something too. All right. Any questions about DCAP, BTLS, pulse motor and sensation, and the Babinski's test? Once you've done that on that leg, what do you do? Go to the other leg. Once you got both legs, come up to the arms, the upper extremities. DCAP, BTLS, PMS in the hands. There is no Babinski's for the hands, by the way. Don't rake it in their palm. It ain't going to do nothing. Right? So now you've done all this, and once you have at least three people on scene, you're going to log roll the patient on his or her side, and you're going to check their back. You're going to feel right down their cervical spine, right down their thoracic spine. You're going to feel for any deformities, any any uh, what they call step-offs. And once you feel your first step-off, you'll never forget it. You're feeling the, the spine, and it, it goes in. It kind of sinks in like a step that ain't normal and it ain't gonna scab over alright feel for deformities step offs whatever feel all the way down to their buttocks the back of their legs and then you're gonna put the board behind them and roll them on the board because as little as you can move them the better off you are okay uh, then you're gonna reassess check for any secondary injuries you're gonna be en route to the hospital Obviously, at this point, but in a nutshell, that is your full body scan. 
And you should be done with it how fast? 60 to 90 seconds, because you're off the scene how fast? So where are these done? Sitting on the scene? I ain't talking about real world now. I'm talking about textbook. If it's a priority patient, when are the IVs done? In route to the hospital. In reality, when are they done? You can say sit on the scene because I've done it that way too for years. It's just easier if you're not in the back of a bumping ambulance. But don't waste time getting it done. All right. Uh, your focused assessment. These are pro, uh, stable patients, obviously. If it's a if it's a difficulty breathing call or something that involves the respiratory system, look for uh, airway obstructions. Listen to the chest. And you know, and if it's it says expose the patient's chest, but I mean you have to you have to temper all things with common sense. Eighty year old woman sitting in her home saying she's having difficulty in breathing, you're not going to expose her chest. All right? You're going to auscultate breath sounds to her shirt. But you're supposed to do that, inspect for symmetry. Again, it is important that both sides of the chest rise and fall at the same time. You should have symmetrical movement of the chest. Listen for breath sounds. Measure the respiratory rate. What's the normal respiratory rate range for an adult? Child. Infant. The adult learners learn through repetition. What are retractions? Are retractions a good or a bad thing? They're a bad thing. when the skin sinks in when you try to breathe. That's correct. Cardiovascular system, look for trauma to the chest. Reevaluate pulse, respiratory rate, things of that nature, the blood pressure. What is the name, the medical name for BP cuff? A sphygmomanometer. Huh? I think that's right. A sphygmomanometer. BP cup. You can spell it any way you want to. All right. So, uh, blood pressure, that's the pressure of the circulating blood against the walls of the artery. Okay. And that is, you've got, uh, blood pressure is represented in two numbers, right? Yeah, the top number and the bottom number. The top number is the 
Systolic. Bottom number? What's the difference? The systolic pressure represents the pressure on the arterial walls when the ventricles contract. The diastolic is the amount of pressure on the arterial walls when the ventricles are relaxed. Okay. Good deal. And what is that? The blood pressure cuff contains the following components. A wide outer cuff, an inflatable bladder, a ball pump with a one-way valve, and a pressure gauge. Now, if you hear anybody... Now, the cardiac monitors, if they... A lot of times they, they have blood pressure capabilities built into the cardiac monitors. But if someone takes a sphygmomanometer and a stethoscope and takes a blood pressure and says a BP's one fifty three over ninety nine. What do you know right off the bat? They bull stuffing, ain't they? How you know that? Even numbers only. That's right. In increments of two. Uh, when you when you put the cuff on there, you put the stethoscope right there where the brachial artery runs down through the antecubital area, and you inflate the cuff. In reality, you just inflate the cuff to about 200 millimeters of mercury, right? That's what we all do. Textbook, you're supposed to be listening for that pulse and inflate the cuff till the pulse goes away. Then inflate about 20 to 30 millimeters of mercury beyond that. All right, we all we all put it on, pump it up to two, and if at 200 we still hear their pulse, we say, "Oh crap," because we know their pressure is high, and we pump it up some more, right? Now, and here's the deal: when you're auscultating or, or listening for blood pressure, once you inflate the cuff and you put this the uh, Stethoscope, the bell of the stethoscope right there in the AC or the antecubital area, then you slowly release the pressure. Alright? And you're listening for that first bump. Do not watch the gauge, because the gauge bouncing means absolutely nothing to you. The gauge bouncing means absolutely nothing. It's what you hear. You're auscultating a blood pressure. You're watching that gauge as you decrease the pressure. And as that gauge goes down, 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 when you hear that first bump, wherever the needle is pointing is your systolic pressure. Then you allow it to continue so you hear it. Bump, 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 bump. And when you hear the last bump, that's your diastolic pressure. The needle bouncing means nothing means nothing, okay? It's what you hear, not what you see. Now, if you palpate a blood pressure or feel for blood pressure, the difference there is you're going to put the cuff on, you're going to find that radial pulse, and you're going to be feeling the radial pulse, and you're going to inflate the cuff in reality to about 200, but this one would be easier to inflate it till you don't feel the pulse no more than go about 20 or 30 more. But either way, you're palpating, you're looking at the gauge, you slowly release the air, and as the needle goes down, and when you feel that first bump in the wrist, 
That is your palpated blood pressure. You don't get a diastolic number with that. You're done at that point. So if you're watching and it bumps at 120, then the blood pressure is recorded as 122, 120p, or 120 palp, just whatever you prefer. But if you see just a number, one number in the letter P, that means they palpated a blood pressure. There is no diastolic with a palpated pressure. Which one is most accurate? Auscultate. So why would you palpate for blood pressure? Sometimes you have difficulty hearing. Either because of sirens or horns that are stuck on from head-on collisions or people screaming or maybe their blood pressure is just so low that you have difficulty hearing it. Either way, palpate. That gets you in the ballpark. Okay, but it's not the most accurate way. We good with that? All right. Hypotension is blood blood pressure that is lower than normal. If you have a systolic pressure of less than a hundred, that is considered hypotension or hypotensive. You have an unusually low blood pressure. Hypertension is higher than normal blood pressure. And as we go through the years, what they're considering hypertension gets lower and lower and lower, right? Um, The neurologic system, talking about continuing with the focused assessment. Uh, Again, that's when you get down there, can you feel me touching your feet? Can you wiggle your toes? Can you feel me touching your hands? Can you wiggle your fingers? That is a neurologic assessment. <clears throat> or asking them those, those sample questions or those AFPU questions. Or conscious alert and oriented times four questions. A lot of times, especially if someone sustained a head injury, you'll ask them the same question. You can ask them, hey, bud, what's your name? Do you know what happened? Whatever. Five minutes later, you're going to ask them the same thing. Hey, bud, what's your name? Do you know what happened? Why are you repeating yourself? Make sure they're not deteriorating, right? Make sure you get the same answer this time as you got last time. Um, and especially closed head injuries, you're going to repeat questions. That's okay. But if they're repeating the same questions, does that tell you something different? And it, it would be so clear-cut and obvious to you. I mean... They wake up and they look at you and they say, where am I at? What happened? And literally 45 seconds later, they ask you, where am I at? What happened? I mean, they just keep doing it over and over and over again. Those repetitive questions by them mean something obviously worse than you you asking the same question. Pupils. Pupils should be what? Pearl. Pearl. Equal round and reactive to light. What do you see there? What does that tell you? What's the third pair of cranial nerves affect or or operate? The pupils in particular. 
you know if you see pupils like that, there's pressure building in the head and it's pushing on the third pair of cranial nerves. Are some people born like that? There's a name for that. What is it? I think I am misspelling that one a little bit. Somebody find it in the book and tell me how I misspelled it. There you go. Like that. I'm blind. So that could be normal. Probably not, however. Yeah. Causes of depressed brain function, and again, it's going to affect those pupils. When pressure starts building in that cranial vault, it's eventually going to affect those pupils. Brain injury, trauma, stroke, uh, certain type of stroke that we'll talk about later. Brain tumors, and again, as the tumors grow, they're still exerting pressure, right? Because there's only so much space in that cranial wall. Inadequate oxygenation, drugs, toxins. Taking a pen light, shining it in the pupil. Pupil should be pearl. That's slightly different than mine. Whichever you prefer, it doesn't matter. As long as you know that pupils are pearl. Equal round and reactive to light. Um, let me ask you a question. If you had like something that was like separating the two eyes and nothing over here could get over here as far as the field of vision, you have a wall that runs from here to that door that's right between my two eyes. And if somebody comes over here and shines a light in my right pupil, will my left pupil react? Raise your hand if you say no. I can't go to Vegas with y'all. That 50 50 shot. It will. It will react. Yep. Musculoskeletal system continuing with the focused assessment, assess for posture and look at the joints, compare the right side with the left. Things should look the same, they should be bilaterally equal, so to speak. Pelvis, symmetry, any obvious signs of injury, bleeding, deformity. If someone has a broken pelvis or if you feel crepitous when you palpate that pelvic girdle, you do not log roll those people. You do not roll them up on their side. Because I've already told you, it's rarely one fracture, right? You're going to have multiples. You log roll them and them bones get to moving around. There's major arteries that run through that pelvic girdle. Right? You could literally cause them to bleed to death inside their pelvic girl. If they have a possibility of a pelvic fracture, you do not log roll those people. Okay? Scoop stretcher or orthopedic stretcher, and we'll cover that later. You looking for DCAP, BTLS? D stands for what? Contusion. Abrasion, punctures, burns, 
And when you get to the feet and hands, you're looking for PMS. Pulse motor sensation. Then you got, look, there's three rescuers, rock, log rolling. You see he's palpating his posterior thorax. He's checking the cervical spine. He's checking the, the, uh, the whole vertebral column as it comes down. Checking for deformities, any step-offs, anything like that, any point tenderness if they happen to be awake. <coughs> Again, palpating the scalp, palpating the uh, zygomas, the face, cheekbones, looking in their eyes, making sure pupils are pearl. Want to see if there's any fluid coming out of the nose. Coming out, checking the anterior neck. Making sure there's no jugular venous distension. Making sure the trachea is midline. Checking the back for the that point to, uh, point tenderness or any deformities. Once you've checked the front and the back of the neck, you do what? Put the collar on. And you go down to the chest. What are the three ways you check a chest? Look, listen and feel. Inspect, auscultate, palpate. What's the most frequently broken bone in the human body? So you palpate that first, all the way out. Checking the chest, checking for any crepitus, making sure the left and the right side are rising and falling at the same time, right? You're looking for any paradoxical motion. That is when you've got a segment of ribs that moves opposite of the rest of the chest wall, like a seesaw, sometimes called seesaw breathing. If you've got a section of ribs, that means you have three or more ribs broken in two or more places. It's called a flail segment of chest, a flail chest. You're looking for that. Listening to breath sound. Checking the abdomen, like I said. You're looking for ascites. That swelling in the abdomen. Any point tenderness. Yeah. Reassess. How often do we reassess? Or every time you provide an intervention. If you put them on oxygen, if they have difficulty breathing, they're breathing 20 times a minute, you put them on oxygen in a few minutes, what are you going to do? Reassess their breathing. Is it working? <laughs> Is it getting better or not? Repeat the initial assessment. Vital signs should be repeated every five minutes for unstable patients. Those in high priority or rapid transport categories and every 15 minutes for stable patients. Reassess the patient's chief complaints and repeat the focused assessment as necessary. Determine the effects of the interventions performed. Effective clinical decision making depends on your ability to gather and evaluate patient information. <clears throat> You've got, like I've told you, you're going to take what the patient tells you. You're going to take what you find. You're going to take what your cardiac monitor shows you, what your blood glucose, your glucometer shows you. You're going to take what your, uh, if I didn't say it, your pulse oximetry. You're going to take all of that. And those are just pieces of the puzzle, right? 
You're going to formulate a field impression. That means that's what you think is wrong. We don't diagnose, but we can do just field impressions. Let's see. He says he's having difficulty in breathing. It looks like he's struggling. The pale, the skin's pale, cool, diaphoretic, and he's breathing about 24 times a minute, roughly. Pulse oximeter says he's got a saturation of about 84%. And he has a history of um, congestive heart failure. What do you think's wrong? He needs oxygen because there's probably fluid in his lungs, right? Whatever. That's your field impression. But you treat the signs and symptoms that you find, okay? You have to be able to critically think. There's no doubt about it. Analyze and compare similar situations. And you'll, you'll recall contrary situ situations. Uh, on the fire side, this is called RPDM. Who's ever heard of that? It's recognition prime decision making. Done that, been there, done that, right? Oh, last time I looked at somebody who looked that bad, we was intubating them five minutes later. What do you think you might want to go ahead and start helping the paramedic get out? Get that stuff out. Get that stuff out. Been there, done that. That's where you gained the experience. That's how you really, that's how you know these things and learn these things. In summary, we said all that. All right, number one. During the scene size up, you should routinely determine all of the following except A, the mechanism of injury and nature of illness. B, the ratio of pediatric patients to adult patients. C, whether or not additional resources are needed. D, if there are any hazards that will jeopardize safety. B, everybody, if you have your, your sheet with you, Look at it and see which one ain't under scene size of. And it's B, because it says excess. You arrive at the scene of an injured person. As you exit the ambulance, you see a man lying on the front porch of his house. He appears to have been shot in the head and is lying in a pool of blood. You should A, immediately assess the patient. B, proceed to the patient with caution. C, quickly assess the scene for a gun. Or D, retreat to a safe place and wait for law enforcement to arrive. That's a no-brainer, right? To begin with, he's shot in the head. What are you really going to do for him? And you don't want to be shot in the head. All right. Findings such as inadequate breathing or an altered level of consciousness should be identified in the A, primary assessment, B, the full body scan, C, the secondary assessment, or D, the reassessment. Because the primary assessment is when you're looking for the immediate life threat, right? What's going to kill them right now? And that's in the ABC. Number four, which of the following would you not detect while determining your initial general impression of a patient? 
is it A, cyanosis, B, gurgling respiration, C, severe bleeding, or D, a rapid heart rate? Yeah, because you're going to walk, as your wife, he's sitting in that chair. If he has cyanosis, I'm going to see it. If he's gurgling, I'm going to hear it. Bleeding heavily, I'm obviously going to see it, but I'm not seeing that pulse rate. I guess unless you see them sometimes, that pulse is getting it, you'll see it bouncing in their neck. But that's not all of them. Number five, your primary assessment of an elderly woman who fell reveals an altered level of consciousness and a large hematoma. That's a pop knot, in case you're wondering. Yeah. To her forehead. After protecting her spine and administering oxygen, you should. This is a prime example. What's next on this piece of paper? We can let you answer that question correctly. After protecting her spine and administering oxygen, you should A, reassess your interventions, B, provide, perform a rapid scan, C, transport the patient immediately, or D, perform an exam focusing on her head. Huh? What do we think? I hear A, I hear B. Now I'm hearing C. Now I hear D. <laughs> Any life-threatening problems are discovered in the primary assessment. They should be addressed immediately. The AEMT should then perform a rapid scan to look for other potentially life-threatening injuries or conditions. These are the rapid scan. I guess after you protect her spine, that's the end of scene size up, and you're giving her oxygen. If you'd seen something that said control bleeding, that wouldn't have been the answer. But since it's not there, it'd be a rapid scan. A patient with an altered level of consciousness pushes your hand away when you pinch his earlobe. Uh-oh. You should describe his level of consciousness as A, alert, B, unresponsive, C, responsive to painful stimuli, or D, responsive to verbal stimuli. C. That's right. He pins the earlobe, he responds to the pain. Assessment of an unresponsive patient's breathing begins by A, inserting an oral airway, which we hadn't talked about yet. B, manually position the head. C, assessing respiratory rate and depth. Or D, clearing the mouth with suction as needed. Anybody say anything else? A, B, C. Somebody say something else. B. Airway. If they're injured, you do the jaw thrust maneuver. If they're a medical patient, head tilt, chin lift. But you got to open that airway before you assess the breathing. Okay. Your 12-year-old patient can speak only two or three words without pausing to take a breath. He has a serious breathing problem. It's not actually the problem. It's how he's reacting to the problem. But is it called nasal flaring, two to three word dyspnea, labored breathing, or shallow respirations? Obviously, you can only say two or three words without pausing and take a breath. And dyspnea means what? Difficulty in breathing or bad breathing, yeah. 
How should you determine the pulse in an unresponsive eight-year-old patient? A, palpate the radial pulse at the wrist. B, palpate the brachial pulse inside the upper arm. C, palpate the radial pulse with your thumb. Or D, palpate the carotid pulse in the neck. <coughs> In unresponsive patients over one year of age, if they're unresponsive, you check the carotid pulse. If they're conscious, radial. Unconscious, carotid. When assessing your patient's pain, he says it started in his chest, but has spread to his legs. That's bad chest pain. This is an example of what part of the OPQRST and I mnemonic. Is it A, onset, B, quality, C, region or radiation, or D, severity? C. Radiation. It's obviously moving. All right. Now, when's the next class? Wednesday.